All right, so quiz is up and available, covers chapters 11 and 12, and that's available all weekend, and will be available through Monday, so if you want to take it after the exam, you can. Probably better off taking it before the exam, because you might see some of the questions again. Might not either, but you're likely to see at least some, some of the topics you'll certainly be seeing again. So certainly worth looking at that and trying to complete that before the exam, which will be Monday. Covers chapters 10, 11, and 12. Uh, this time and then we'll be heading off. We're still working on chapter 13 and we'll continue on that today and so on. Um, third solar observations, your last set that I'm collecting will be due on Wednesday of next week. So I'll take a look at those and then a, probably probably not that Friday but probably the Friday after that we'll go through and do the project, this, the work in the project that we're going to do in class in the lab that following like a week after, a week after that. So it doesn't mean stop making observations. You're still looking for about 10 over the entire semester. So if you're not quite there, if you've only turned in one each time, you're a little bit behind. Uh, but you're really looking for about 10 by the time you turn in the project at the end of, the, end of this month, now that it is officially November. So um, Homework 6, which I gave out earlier this week, is due next Friday. And then the other two things coming up are a couple of quizzes. And then we're going to get hit with a bunch of other things starting to come up uh, right about this time, right about this time as well. I'll start putting some of those up next week. But the I third iTunes quiz will be up in two weeks, or start through pictures through next week, and then quiz number six will be up about the same, about the same time for you. So, questions, questions? No. All right. Well, interesting picture of the day for today. This is titled NGC 7841. It's the smoke nebula. Look like it, maybe? Looks like a little snake. And it's in the constellation of Frustrios. Anyone ever heard of that constellation? Maybe not? not? Not one of the zodiacal constellations. It's considered the constellation of the frustrated astrophotographer. <laughs> So, you may be getting some hints if you also, since you, but you, one thing you won't know is that the NGC catalog has 7,840 objects in it. So that sort of might give you another hint that this isn't really anything out in space. And that constellation, the, there is no NGC 7841, it's a made up number. The, the catalog stops at 7,840. So this is not actually a picture of anything out in space. This was an uh, astrophotographer who got tired of all of their uh, cloudy nights and decided to make their own image. Now I don't know how well you can see the stars that they've got in there. Not, not make their own images and go on the computer and make something digitally, but actually make a photograph. So now you'll actually be able to see the stars, I hope, as the thing adjusts. Can you see all the, star I mean, the starry background out there? I mean, it looks, it really looks a lot like you know, some of the nebulae that we've looked at in class. The stars were done sort of a mist of water in the background and then actually the smoke nebula, it is really smoke coming up and was then illuminated to give it the different coloring and the different, um, different brightnesses there. So not, not, a, not a supernova remnant or anything like we looked at earlier this week. Uh, just a, a bored astrophotographer on a, on a, after a streak of cloudy nights not able to take any more images and making up kind of their own images again using the water, water vapor to give you the stars in the background and then smoke in the foreground 
but it does give it you know, a lot of the patterns that we've seen in, in many of the nebulae that we've looked at, especially things like a supernova remnant. It looks a lot like that. So, any questions? Nothing astronomical there, but kind of a cool, cool picture that they put together in any case. I'll give you some more light back. Now the stars are washed out again, but... No? No? Okay. So if I give you a question on that one, I might ask you what the constellation of Frustrios is. So, be a good one, huh? I'm sorry? Yeah. Or how many objects are there in the NGC catalog, new, new general catalog? That'd be even tougher. Eh, I try not to be that tough on it. But who knows? Now that I've told you, it's not hard. So, some of us aren't. Is, are we supposed to be here today? They should be. Is it being recorded that they could go listen to if they wanted to? <laughs> will they? Probably not. Maybe they will. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I should make, them make it a really hard question. I should give you all the answers and then they, and I've given you them and they're all recorded and they could have them all and then they decided not to. So, all right. Well, let us go ahead and head back to chapter 13 then. Let's see. And we were looking at neutron stars last time. So I think I showed you I showed you this slide at the end and we were looking at a neutron star. A neutron star is a compact star. Essentially, you've crushed all the electrons into the nucleus of the atom. You've gotten rid of all the space in the in the atoms between the nucleus and the electrons. That's most of the space. Without those, the atom is essentially nothing in terms of size. And it crushes something that was the size of the sun, or even two and three times the size of the sun, down to the size of a city. And that's why it's given here against Manhattan sort of as a background, crushing it down to about six miles, ten kilometers in size. So incredibly tiny, and all you're doing is squishing out all that space within the atoms. Uh, extremely dense, so like we mentioned with the white dwarf, eventually it'll cool off and technically you could land on it. Are you ever going to walk on it? No, if you ever tried to land on this, again, you'd be splatted flat as you got there. The gravity would be that intense. Even if the surface cooled off, it would still be technically a solid surface, but unlike our own sun, but you'd never be able to land in there because the gravity is so intense that it would smash anything flat as, as, it, as it landed. All right, so let's go how we know about neutron stars and what we can know about them. Again, they're very tiny, so they're going to be hard to detect. What other properties are they going to have? Well, two things, and this actually leads us into how we discovered neutron stars. But they have, we already talked about how big they are, talked about how massive they are. They spin. Okay, so stars are spinning. Our sun spins about once a month. So imagine taking that thing spinning once a month compressing it down to the size of a city. Right? Remember the ice skater? You spin around, you pull your arms in a little bit, you start spinning a lot faster. Imagine taking this entire star that's spread out across you know, hundreds of thousands of or hundred thousand kilometers and then bringing it down. Right? Bringing it down to this very tiny size. It's going to spin extremely fast. In fact, you know, less than a second. So they'll spin around you know, several times a second in many cases. Maybe a second, maybe two seconds for some of the longer ones, but they're spinning extremely quickly. 
So you think about that, think about how sturdy this thing has to be. Imagine taking a big 10 kilometer ball of anything and trying to spin it around a couple times a second. It's going to tear itself apart. Right? Forces are going to be so strong it's going to rip itself apart. These things are so solid, so dense that they can spin that fast and even faster. We'll find ones that can spin hundreds of times a second. So incredibly rapid rotation. So very, very fast rotation and a very strong magnetic field. The magnetic field, as it collapses down, all those magnetic field lines get uh, condensed together and it ends up with a much stronger magnetic field than we're used to. So Earth has a decently strong magnetic field, so does the Sun. Uh, Jupiter has a really strong magnetic field. They're all dwarfed by this. The magnetic field around something like a neutron star would be immense compared to a, compared to anything we've, we've looked at before. So incredibly strong magnetic fields. So a few more properties that we'll then know about it. We know how massive they are. They've got a range in mass about the mass of the sun is about as small as you can get them and about as big as three times the mass of the sun uh, before they will no longer hold up against all of the weight pushing down on them and they would collapse down into the last topic we'll get to, which we'll probably talk about on Wednesday, which will be black holes. But in addition to that, they also can spin and they also have very, very strong magnetic fields. So we're getting to, we're getting to a lot of the extremes in astronomy here. All right, aside now, we're going to go and talk about another object, a pulsar. Uh, pulsars have been were discovered in 1967. Um, astronomer uh, Jocelyn Bell was looking at radio emissions from objects in space. And this is one thing she found, was extremely regular pulses coming from this object. So this is the intensity, brightness over a period of time as this object was observed. And you can see that it pulses about roughly once a second. It gives you a pulse or a burst of radio energy. So even though I kind of give away in the slide, it gives away what it is, uh, it was a big puzzle to find out what this object, what object was. What could possibly spin you know, once a second? You know, we already know about neutron stars. I've started telling you about them. But at the time, they were more of a, they were a theoretical construct, construct, had been thought of, but hadn't really you know, come into their own yet. So what could possibly be spinning? A regular star can't do this. A galaxy can't pulse with times of fractions of a second. What could possibly be going on? You know, one of the first things that it could have been considered was, you know, is this a sign of extraterrestrial life? Is this a signal from some civilization? You know, could we send pulses you know, regularly every certain fraction of a second? Well, we sure could. So could some other civilization be sending it? And certainly one of the things that was looked at when this was first discovered was, you know, was this you know, was this sign of some civilization out there sending signals out into space? It was not. It was eventually found that it was a neutron star. More research, they came up with, they found the idea of a neutron star and realized that a neutron star would be able to do something like this. Because it spins so quickly, because it's spinning so fast, it's spinning this fast, it could actually emit these pulses and could cause this. And now we have discovered you know, thousands of pulsars that exist in the universe. So there's thousands of them out there and all different periods ranging from a couple of seconds down to 
you know, spin things within a thousand times a second. So spinning extremely, extremely rapidly. I do not know off the top of my head the closest pulsar. Um, there's some within within hundreds of light years. Uh, the remnant of any, anything place where there's a supernova, and that's how they're produced. Um, I couldn't give you an exact number as to how close it is. I'll have to see if I can take a look for that. Maybe between this and lab, I can take a look and see if I can I can find you one find you answer for that one. So how do we get this? How do we get these pulses from this little neutron star then? Well, here's a little schematic diagram of what we get for a pulsar or a neutron star. You have the neutron star there. You have an intense magnetic field. Remember, much, much stronger than anything else. Our own magnetic field on Earth does a pretty good job of funneling particles around towards the magnetic poles. This immensely stronger is going to do that even better. So particles are confined to either go in or come out of the, of the neutron star at only the poles. So essentially it sends a beam of radiation out one pole and a beam of radiation out the other pole and nothing else any place else you're looking at it. You can think of a pulsar like a lighthouse. As that spins, as this rotates around, so you can imagine, say it's right here, here's how it rotates around this axis so it spins around like that. This beam is going to point at different positions out in space, forming out a cone. If you happen to be in the position of that beam, you're going to get an incredibly bright burst of radio waves. And optical and other things too, but for the discovery, primarily radio waves was what we were detecting. That's how they were first discovered. So if you happen to be in the path of that beam, you're going to get that burst. If you don't happen to be in the path of the beam, you'll never see it. It's all intensely directed in just very specific directions in space. So it's only if we happen to fall in that, in that part of the beam. If we see that, if we happen to be in that portion of the beam, then essentially this star is going to blink on and off. We'll see it. It'll be bright when that beam passes in front of us. Fraction of a second later, the beam has passed us. All of a sudden, it's gone. We don't see anything. Right? It's too tiny, too faint for us to be able to pick up otherwise. Only when everything is magnified and intensified by this strong magnetic field and the strong beam of particles coming out here, that's the only place we're going to see it. And again, using the lighthouse analogy, if you happen to be right in the beam of the lighthouse, right up there, it's going to be bright, blinding you. If you happen to be off so that it's not sweeping in front of you, you're, barely gonna, you're not going to see much of anything. And in fact, if you could ignore the scattering of light through the atmosphere, it would be even a uh, closer effect to that. So essentially think of the pulsar as a great lighthouse. It's sending that beam out. It was first detected in radio waves, but these objects will pulse in um, visible light too. There are ones that we can physically see turn on and off and you can watch them. They're bright, they're not bright. They're bright, they're not bright. You can take images at the right instant. You can find out whether they're when they're on and when they're actually on and when they're actually off. When they're not showing. Uh, when we're not looking directly at that beam. Now this also means again there's lots of these pulsars that we'd never be able to detect in this way. The way that Jocelyn Bell detected the first one. If that beam never passes us we're not going to see it. And this is a very tiny object, very far out from us typically. It's going to be almost impossible to be able to detect it, almost, 
if it's not, it doesn't happen to be pulsing. So if you don't happen to have that pulsar pointing towards you, the beams, you're, never, you're really going to be very, very hard pressed to be able to find it. Now, how long does a pulsar last? Not very long. A few, few 10, 10 million years, 20 million years. The pulsar will uh, give off their energy. They're going to slow down over time. So pulsar will be spinning slower and slower over time. Again, slow, short time, astronomically speaking, not to us. These pulsars are never going to change in terms of us. We can use them as, they can be very considered very accurate clocks as to how fast they are rotating. So you can actually you know, set, set a clock by them. They're running, that, they're running that exactly. But when you add up their little bit of decay, their little bit of slowing down over many millions of years, eventually they will slow down. The radiation will get weaker and weaker over time. And you won't be able to see the pulses. The pulses will become inv- invisible to us. We won't see them. And the neutron star will become invisible. Still there still emitting some energy because it has some temperature to it, but not very much and not enough that we'd easily be able to detect us, detect it. So pulsars are just the special cases. They're the ones that we can actually manage to see because they are, they're the cases where we actually have this intense amount of energy coming towards the Earth. Once they get old, we're not going to see them. So a supernova that occurred several hundred million years ago or a billion years ago, it probably produced a pulsar, it produced a neutron star, but we're never going to see it anymore. We're not going to see it. It's slowed down too much and weakened in energy. If the jets aren't pointing towards us, we're still, we're also, we're never going to see that pulsar. So it requires those two things. It has to be relatively young and the jets have to be pointing in the right direction so that we are then able to see it. So here's an example of one. We looked at the Crab Nebula. I think we looked at a picture of this last time. That's a supernova remnant from 1054. So uh, observed on Earth, the a star exploded oh, almost 1,000 years ago now. And if we zoom in to this central section here, there is the pulsar that we can see. If you take a long exposure, it's certainly the pulsar is going to be visible, even though it's pulsing on and off. But if you really want to look at it closely, here's two sets of the same image, uh, sets of the same image of the same thing looking at the center. There's object, object, object here. So three, four objects in this one, three in this one. The brightest one in this one disappeared. That was the pulsar. You take it one instant, it's there. You get it right when it's illuminating, when it's pointing right at you, even in visible light. That is still, yeah, that's still visible. So even in visible light, you can see it. And if you take that instant, a tiny fraction of a second later, just take that quick snapshot of it, it's not going to be visible at all. It's still there. It's just not sending any energy our way, so we can't see it at all. So essentially, they flick on, they will flick on and off, um, like somebody sitting there, you know, rapidly switching a light switch, on and off, on and off, on and off. Well, that, that pulsar will do the same thing. If you looked at it again, if that, if that one has a period of, you know, a second, then a second later it'll be on, but if you take it at a half second in between, it's not going to be. You're going to see it off. And the pulsars will all do this. So every neutron star will have been a pulsar. We not, might not have been able to detect them all. Some of them might not have been pointing in the right direction. Some of them may have weakened too much for us to now be able to see them. But at some point, every neutron star will have been a pulsar. And every pulsar is a neutron star. 
They're just the ones that are easiest to detect because they're focusing their energy. That energy is being focused and beamed straight to us as long as we happen to be in the right position. The Crab, crab Nebula pulsar is relatively young. Okay, it only occurred, for at least for our perspective, it occurred 1,000 years ago, not quite, 1054. So it actually pulses in gamma rays. As the, as the pulsar ages, it will become less and less energetic. So pulsing in gamma rays requires a very young pulsar. Well, 1,000 years, astronomically speaking, is nothing. So this pulsar was just born, you know, born yesterday or earlier today, and it's still, what, nine something in the morning? So it's just born earlier today. It's still a baby. It's still a really an infant pulsar. So it pulses in all wavelengths, and that's what you can see in the top image is actually seeing there's two pulsars, one that happened to be in that same direction of the sky. There's one here, the crab pulsar, and there's an even stronger one up above it that pulses even, even younger, that pulses even more intensely in gamma rays. So you actually have a couple of pulsars in that same general direction in the sky, not at the same distance. So they're not associated with the same supernova or anything or associated with each other, just in the same, same distance. But when they're really young, when they're only a thousand years old or a few thousand years old, we can see them pulse in gamma rays, in x-rays, invisible light, all the way down through radio. When they get older, as they slow down and they lose energy, they'll begin to pulse. You'll only see the pulses eventually only in the radio. And then finally those will fade off and you won't be able to detect the pulses anymore at all. But even if we could come back in 50 million years or 100 million years, that neutron star is going to still be there at the center of the Crab Nebula. It just no longer is a, is, would be classified as a pulsar. Isolated one. Can we, find a, can we find one that's not a pulsar? Well, we have. This is an example of one that's been, been photographed uh, moving very quickly. This is one that Hubble detected. There's an image of it from 1996. Not very bright. You can see all these other little dots or background noise in the, in the image. Or most of them. There's a few stars and other objects here. But there it was in 1996. There it was a little later in 1999. There it was even later in 1999. Uh, it's a neutron star. It's incredibly, incredibly hot. 700,000 degrees. So our sun is 6,000. So you're talking a, more than 100 times the surface temperature of the sun. Um, moving very, very quickly through space. So could this have been one that perhaps was in a binary system and got thrown out? Say there was another star there that tore itself apart or ripped itself apart in a supernova. This one got thrown out. and Maybe that's why it's moving so quickly through space. It's a good possibility. But this is one. We have been able to detect them. It does not pulse. Even though it's only a million years old, so it's probably pulsing in some way, we're probably just not in the path of the beam. So the beam is going up. If you're the, you're, you're the, you guys are the Earth, you know, the beam could be going around this way, and we're never going to see it. If it's pointing in all these directions, we're never going to see it over there. You're never going to see that beam flashing at you the way you would with, for example, the Crab, crab Nebula Pulsar. But it's extremely hot, relatively young, and that's one of the few cases where we've been able to detect one that was close enough and bright enough, close enough so that it was bright enough to be able to detect. detect. Things much further away would be almost impossible to see. And you can sort of get an idea when I say that background is not 
looking at a whole bunch of distant stars or galaxies, a lot of what you're looking at in this is just background noise in the image. So you do have a little bit of a signal there. You do have a sign of this pulsar. But it's not that much brighter than the minimal things that, the, that even Hubble would be able to detect. So we can detect some isolated ones, but not very many. There's not a lot that have been detected that are isolated as of this point. All right, how about neutron stars in binary systems? Can we get neutron stars in a binary? Well, answer is yes, we can. And one way we discovered these and learned about these was through X-ray bursts. Um, especially looking towards the center of the galaxy. Center of galaxy is good to look at because there's lots of stars there. So we'll see lots of neutron stars, there'll be lots of white dwarfs, anything we're looking for that we see around us, we're going to see a lot more of if we look towards the galactic center. So here's a beautiful picture of one in x-rays. Beautiful picture, right? There it is before, there it is after. Gorgeous, right? But you can definitely see how much brighter it's gotten. It got significantly brighter during this outburst. Now that brightness, this is not a visible picture as it is up here showing the location. This is actually taken in x-rays. So here's how many x-rays were coming before. You were getting a few. Here's how many were coming after. Significantly more, many times more than we were getting before. So this was a burst of x-rays. So what could be causing a burst of x-rays to occur? Well, it's actually a process we've already talked about. If we think about this process, if you recall we talked about white dwarfs in ANOVA, what would happen if the same situation occurred but instead of being a white dwarf star, that compact star were a neutron star? You could get the same type of effect. So what it is, if you have that neutron star and you've got another normal star orbiting around it. Okay, that's what we had with the white dwarf, right? The white dwarf collected material, heated up on its surface, and it burst out in visible light. Well, now you do the same thing on the surface of a neutron star. Neutron stars, much more gravitationally intense, so it's going to be better at sucking in that material. Temperatures are going to be much hotter, and you're going to be able to do the same thing, but now instead of emitting a lot of visible light, you're going to be a much more energetic. You're going to be emitting higher energy radiation, and you're going to be emitting x-rays. So bursts of x-rays are considered to be uh, sort of the neutron star version of a nova. A nova was a white dwarf star, collected material on its surface and burned it off. The same thing happens with a neutron star, then we get what we call an x-ray burster. We see a lot of those towards the center of the galaxy, not because they're you know, more likely to occur at the center of the galaxy, except that there's lots more stars there. For every star you have here, you've got you know, hundreds of thousands of stars towards the center of the galaxy. So there's a lot more to be able to detect these type of objects. But they can be detected. Much more energy, much more energetic than a typical uh, than a nova. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing it in bursting in the x-ray. So we're seeing a lot of x-ray emission. Now I think, oh, go ahead. Could it be unstable if you got it close to its limit? Yeah, certainly you could do the same thing that. I don't know if it would. Mm, <laughs> I'm not sure on that. If you if you got it over its limit, something would happen. Problem with a neutron star is that it is so close to a black hole, it only has to shrink down a little bit 
to technically become a black hole where the entire star would be composed inside the what we call the event horizon. So there pro might not be able to be, it might not have time. Once it starts to collapse, it might become a, might turn it into a black hole and we wouldn't see any kind of explosion the way we see a supernova explosion. But you could get, you certainly could have that case where you could put, you get, you get it up at that limit of three solar masses, plus or minus one or so. Um, you certainly could have some kind of collapse on, collapse on it. I don't think, from what I've ever heard, it would do exactly the same thing that a new white dwarf did. It's just too close, too compact, and too close to really becoming a black hole that it would more likely just push it over that limit and go from being a neutron star to being a black hole. All right, now I've already talked to you about some of the, how fast they spin. Uh, most of them will spin you know, a couple times a second. Even some slower ones will spin a second or two seconds between pulses. Um, back in the early 1980s, so about 30 years ago, we discovered a new kind of pulsar, a millisecond pulsar. So a millisecond is a thousandth of a second. So now you have this thing that's six miles across spinning, you know, thousand, a thousand, spinning a thousand times in a second. Can you imagine how, just think of how structurally, in, structural, not what the, think of the structural integrity that thing has to have to be able to spin that fast, right? Could you spin almost anything? Could you spin yourself a thousand times a second and not rip yourself apart? No, your body would not hold up to spinning a thousand times a second if you tried to spin yourself that fast. Your body probably would not be able to hold up to that. But this neutron star, even much bigger, you know, try to spin Jupiter a thousand times a second. Jupiter would rip itself apart. The Earth would rip itself apart. These objects are able to spin that fast. But how do we get them spinning that fast? That's even faster than, we, than a calculation show they'd normally form. So normally you'd form a uh, pulsar, you, I mean a neutron star, you'd know how fast it was spinning, you know, maybe uh, that's about 30, you know, maybe about 30 times in a, uh, 30 times a second or three times a second, you know, getting up to that, but not getting into hundreds or pushing a thousand times a second. And one of the ways we try to, we've come up to be able to explain that is we're sort of giving it a push. Well, we're not, but something's giving it a push. Like you had a kid on a swing and you keep pushing them at the right time, they go higher and higher on the swing. Well, if you push that neutron star and give it a little kick every time, and that's what this is showing, this little spiral is matter spiraling into it. And if this neutron star is spinning this way, and you give it a kick every time you give it another little bit of matter, you're pushing it in that direction. So you're pushing, you're accelerating it. You're going to make it spin faster and faster. Every time as material keeps going in, it goes a little bit faster. Another clump of material comes in, give it another push. And if you're pushing in the same direction, you're going to slowly accelerate up and spin up that neutron star, so spinning a lot faster than it otherwise would. So we can actually get this star spinning a lot faster by material spiraling into it. Now, might be enough material to eventually cause an x-ray burst as it clumps up on there, for example, as we were looking at in the previous, previous section. So very, very fast, very, very fast spinning pulsars. Again, spinning 1,000 times, 1,000 times a second. All right, what else can we do with these binaries? Well, we've got this, here's a globular cluster. This globular cluster, globular clusters have you know, hundreds of thousands of stars. Um, if we look at the core of it, 
in x-rays, this is a visible light images, that's what we'd see in visible light. If we zoom in at the core and look at it just in x-rays, you've got all these x-ray sources. A lot of those are considered to be these pulsars. So it's a very common thing, it appears to happen, that these pulsars can be spun up to these very high, very high rotational rates. So something very easy to be able to occur. Why? Because we look at one globular cluster and we can find 100 x-ray sources. And just looking again at one globular cluster, not talking about any other galaxies, not talking about anything else in the universe, we're able to find, if we say half of those, which is about the estimate, are these millisecond pulsars. There's 50 of them in just this one globular cluster. How many globular clusters are there around our galaxy? You know, hundreds of them. How about other galaxies? More and more. We're not talking about even within our own galaxy. So these things have to be able to form very easily. And that's why the method that, that comes up is that's sort of that pushing. It's a very common thing. Most of these are going to be in, most stars are in binary systems as it is. So it's not unusual to say, oh, it takes a binary star to do this. It's a very common thing in the universe. Binary stars are very, very common. So giving it that extra little push is very, very easy in this case. So this is just one example of a globular cluster where we've seen this kind of number of millisecond pulsars. So they're very, very common in the universe. Now, we had x-ray bursts. How about gamma ray bursts? Okay, here's a bunch of gamma ray bursts, a couple thousand of them that have been observed. Uh, the map there is actually showing the entire sky. So that's an entire sky map from way up, way far north to completely to the south from the North Pole to the South Pole, all the way to the east, all the way to the west, looking at an entire 360 degree view of the sky. And you see where the gamma ray bursts are concentrated, right? No place? They're everywhere. They don't occur. Like if our galaxy happens to go through a stripe through the middle, say, depending on, I don't see what, co can't tell what coordinates they're using on here, but if the galaxy goes through here, if it's galactic coordinates, they're not concentrated in our galaxy. They pretty much occur every place. So they're not a part of our galaxy. If they were part of our galaxy, we'd see them concentrated towards where our galaxy is. So you don't see them anywhere. They don't seem to uh, burst any, burst, they don't seem to burst you know, any place in particular, not in one part of the sky, not in another. They're all over the place. Uh, mentions how these were first found. Um, looking for uh, nuclear tests. So actually looking for violations of the test ban treaties. Uh, a nuclear explosion will give off lots of gamma rays and could be detected. So when you start detecting the first ones of these, you start wondering you know, what's going on, you know, who's setting off nuclear explosions someplace. But when you start finding this many, obviously 2,700, scattered across the entire universe now, when we can begin to detect them and map them a lot better, you know, what are these? So what are we had x-ray bursts. We were able to explain those. How can we get a burst of gamma rays that's even more intense than a neutron star would be able to give you? And give you a hint ahead, you can't jump ahead to a black hole because you're not going to be able to get anything off a black hole. So we still need something in between to try to be able to explain these, to explain how we get these bursts. They're not a rare event, right? If we've mapped them, we've only been able to detect gamma rays for a few decades now, right, from space because we had to have satellites. And if you go back 60 years, there were no satellites, right? Are we? Yeah, 60 years still. No, sat no satellites 60 years ago. So nothing. 50 years ago, still no satellites, right? 
Now we're getting there. Early satellites, 50, 55 years ago, pretty much no satellites. So no satellites. So we've only been able to look at them recently, and we found thousands of them. So they have to be relatively common. And that's what's occurred in the last few decades. So it's very, very common. So what might explain these kind of these kind of bursts? Here's a few examples of what we see. They're a pretty good burst and they vary. These are a couple different ones here. Very, very short times. If you look at this one here, that goes out from zero to one second. So this burst was an incredible spike going from some background level where there was almost no emission of gamma rays and getting all of a sudden four times brighter and then dropping back down real quickly. I mean, tiny fraction of a second. That is a quarter, that is four tenths of a second right there. So two tenths, one tenth, you're less than a tenth of a second. That you had this burst, big burst of gamma rays all of a sudden and then they're gone. So don't blink, you miss that one. It's gone, right? Your telescope goes down at the wrong instant, you don't see it. Some of them last a little bit longer. Here's an example, this one there, we've got, we've got a whole minute there. 60 seconds, burst up, had a couple little bursts on top of it and came back down. Again, here's another one, maybe about a second in duration. So if that's, assume yes, time in seconds. So yeah, maybe about a second. Gets really, really bright again. Goes from here to background, which is what, about 5,000 up to almost 40,000, so eight times brighter than it was. So a really a big increase in the amount of gamma rays being produced. It takes something incredibly energetic to produce gamma rays. Right? It's not something that you just see, you know, stars don't produce many gamma rays. They're not hot enough. Really hot stars produce ultraviolet light. And really hot things like the corona of the sun start to get up to x-ray temperatures. In order to produce gamma rays, you're talking temperatures of, you know, the tens of millions of degrees. That's what goes on at the center of our sun. It's producing lots of gamma rays. So you need those incredibly high temperatures. How far away are they? Well, some of them are quite far away. This first one measured, uh, able to determine a distance is 2 billion parsecs. What does that mean, 2 billion parsecs? A parsec is about three, a little over 3 light years. So about 6 billion light years. Say about six and a half billion light years, that's about halfway out to the edge of the known universe, which is about 13 point something billion light years away. So little ways out there, you know, halfway to the edge of the universe. That's not in our own backyard by any sense. Is there a question or? All I was going to say, does that mean that in our history those are kind of behind us now because since it was such a long time ago that those gamma ray bursts took place? Well. That, that's when that one occurred. That's when one was able to be measured. It's not easy to be able to measure distances right. to them. So if you can get a distance, the only way you can get a distance is if you see where it occurred and you're able to get some kind of spectrum of it, then you can get a sort of a distance determination. How many have we found? Well, a lot. A lot. I, showed two, I showed you a picture of 2,700 of them. That's probably not all of them. So we've probably even got more than that by now. So it's many, th many thousands of them. But if something like that happened around here, it would depend on where it, where it occurred and how close it really, it really was. But yeah, you wouldn't want that intense, you know, you wouldn't want a big burst of gamma rays coming and striking us. Certainly our atmosphere would protect us a good amount. I mean, we do get gamma rays coming in and that's why we can't detect them at all because our atmosphere blocks them out. But yes, if this were to occur in a nearby star, 
our atmosphere might not be and to be big enough to be able to protect us. Is it like is it one of the most energetic events that we know of? Uh, yeah, this, that's what it will be. Be one of the, one of the most energetic things that we can get to. So be beyond a supernova explosion, in fact. So even even more energy than that. So this is one example. Give me an idea. If this is one, some of them are distances, so they've been occurring for a long time, but they could still be occurring. And the method that we have isn't well, methods uh, really doesn't depend on them being only a long time ago. So two things, two models that have been that have been given. Uh, look at the first one is two stars merging together. So if you have a neutron stars, here's two neutron stars in a binary system. If they're close enough and those orbits slowly decay, okay, they're slowly getting closer together. So you know this year they're this far away, then they're this far away. They're slowly getting closer and closer. That'll magnify as they get even closer together. Eventually they will begin to merge. You'll probably form a black hole in the long run, but at the time as you start to coalesce the material into that's now central core, you're going to get a very high temperature, very heated up disk of material around it, around that central core, and that's going to give off a lot of energy and that could give you off a burst of gamma rays. So that's one model that you could get from it. Another model that we use is one that actually comes out in a lot of supernova models. There's a big problem in blowing up a star. It's not an easy thing to do. Okay? When you think about that, you've got that explosion that collapsed down at the center. A lot of the models show that that star will not explode. Right? You're, trying, you're trying to blow up that star. You've got all these nuclear explosions going off, but you've got a lot of material you're trying to push away. That's going to suck the energy out of it and release energy from that explosion. Right? If you have a bomb going off out in the yard, it's going to do quite a good bit of damage. If you load it up with tons and tons of material on top of it, depending on how strong your explosion, you're going to muffle that explosion. You put enough material on it, you know, You'll notice the explosion, but it's going, to be, it's going to be much more cut down. Well, that's one of the things that happens in some of the models of supernovae. And what happens is the star collapses down, starts to rebound, and explode, but it doesn't have enough energy. Or the star is just too massive. It's one of these really big, massive stars. You're trying to push solar masses worth of material. So you're trying to push suns away. And you just don't have enough energy. So that it's expand, it starts to push it out and it just doesn't have enough energy. Well, if you don't do that, you stop. All of a sudden, you've got no force. Gravity kicks in and gravity collapses everything down. So there's a way to form a black hole. Black hole forms at the center when the supernova stalls and then starts to suck in matter. And that kind of reignites the supernova and explodes out the outer layers. As this disk forms, a lot of energy now is reformed. You have a new source of energy. As material spirals into that black hole, you release a lot of energy. And that restarts, kickstarts, gives that, you know, gives that supernova explosion a big kick and starts it again and expels it out, expels that outer material out. So that may be a way in a supernova explosion, or actually in this case what we call a hypernova, so beyond a supernova, could give you that burst of gamma rays and could give you a black hole. Remember, a normal supernova explosion typically left you with a neutron star behind. This type, a hypernova, could actually leave a black hole behind. And one of the ways that we believe you could possibly form a black hole 
In either case, you get the same kind of thing. You get some kind of disk of material uh, spiraling into a very dense object, whether a black hole or not. And as that comes in, it releases a lot of energy that flows out. And that gives us that great burst of gamma rays that we've certainly detected thousands of these in the last few decades, many thousands of them in the last few decades. Now what do we see? Here's an example of one. There's a gamma ray burster on the uh, left hand side. There it's very bright. And there it's very faint again, just, a, just a, less than a month later. And when we look at it uh, later on, you actually start to see a little disk of material forming around it, sort of almost like a supernova remnant. So it gives us an idea that this piece of evidence, at least, supports the hypernova model. Is it settled? Not by any stretch. There's still, you know, still debate, still lots of observations going on to determine what the cause of these gamma ray bursts are. We know that they occur. Again, we've detected thousands of them. This one gives us some idea. This looks like a really, really bright supernova when astronomers study it. And it looks like it leaves that remnant behind. This is a visible picture taken later. And you can start to see that material spreading out in a remnant left behind. So gives us that idea that perhaps the hypernova model could be correct and that that would be one way to form a black hole. But still, as you'll see, you know, for most of the rest of the course, a lot of these things are work in progress, work in progress. Astronomers are still researching it. Astronomers are still researching it. So give you, talk to you about what, they, what the current models are. But you know, take the course in five years, 10 years, 20 years. You know, half of this stuff might be, forget what we used to believe 20 years ago. That was garbage. You know, and we'll find out what's, what's been found since then. All right. Let's see. Well, I will ju I'll just do the introduction for a black hole since we're about out of time for this section of the class right now anyway. But let me do the introduction and then we'll come back here on Wednesday. Exam on Monday and then we'll come back here on Wednesday and I'll actually talk about black holes. So that'll be a good starting point. Like the white dwarf, the neutron star has a limiting mass. Is that a question? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go, go, go. You were talking about neutron stars. Are we not, we're not going to talk about a magnetar at all? I didn't have anything specific on a magnetar. It's a really intense magnetic field, so even beyond the neutron star ones. But yeah, I don't have anything specific on them. Wow, you're looking forward to them? I was, but oh. I'm right. Well, there's a good, a good topic for a review article for the third article. <laughs> OK. So there, there's a limit. A white dwarf had a limit of about 1.4 solar masses. Neutron star has a limit of about 3. Again, it's not very well defined. Um, it's very difficult to know the structure of a big ball of neutrons. It's not something we can reproduce in the laboratory and experiment with. So maybe it's a little bit more than that. Maybe it's a little bit less. But if what's left over after a supernova explosion is more than that, there is nothing known that can stop the collapse. So as a star starts to collapse, First, it gets stopped by the electrons pushing against each other. That provides a pressure to hold the star up against gravity. More mass than that, it gets condensed down to a giant nucleus. And the neutrons pushing against each other, physically butting up against each other, eventually provides a pressure to keep it from collapsing. After more than about three solar masses, those neutrons crush into each other, into whatever neutrons break down into, right? down into quarks and stuff. So you're going to go well beyond that. It just collapses and collapses and collapses down to 
According to current theory, nothing. So it'll collapse all that mass down to a point. So you could take that mass to the sun and squeeze your fingers together as tight as you can and fit it between them. That's the sen- now that's the, theor- that's the theory right now that it says. Whether that's really what happens is a good question. We don't know. Our, our, our science, our physics, will not tell us what happens that deep down in there. It all breaks, all of our physics breaks down. Yes, sir? It says that it's infinitely small and infinitely... Infinitely um, small. Gravitational. It has infinite it has, gravity. Right. Infinity is just a monstrosity. It doesn't even it's a concept. How could it really happen? That's what our theories show. But you know, uh, Newton's theory of um, motion says that you can go as fast as you want. If you want to go 10 times the speed of light, it doesn't say anything about that you can't. Now, Einstein says different things. Einstein's, you know, has different laws that break down, that break down into Newton's laws in typical everyday experience. So it's quite possible that there is another theory of, gravi- theory of gravity, you know, uh, string theory and all that stuff that people work on to be able to explain better, you know, what really happens down there. Does something else kick in at a much smaller level within that black hole? The problem is when you get that small, we can't go observe it. We have enough trouble with some of these things trying to observe them. When you get down to a black hole, you've gotten to the point where the escape velocity is greater than that of light, greater than the speed of light. So we try to shine a light beam up, it can't get out. It just, you know, comes back down, it comes back down. Or eventually it gets redshifted completely into, uh, into nothingness. So it's unable to escape from that. So even light cannot escape it. So we can't know anything about it. If you get down to the surface of a black hole, you could go explore it all you wanted. But you got no way, to, unless you can travel faster than light, which Einstein still says no, and we haven't found anything that proves him wrong yet, there's no way to get out of that black hole. So you can get in there, you could get into a black hole, you could explore it, depending on the size of the black hole, there's other problems with that, but we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, probably on Wednesday. But what's left, what's left over is, you know, really the most exotic object we can probably come up with in astronomy, and that is a black hole. Not even light can escape from it. Its gravity is that intense. So I will pick up there on Wednesday. So if you'd like, take a couple minute, three minute break, and then we'll come back. I'll get the computers booted up so we can do another starry night, another starry night lab again. Other questions? Questions? No. Already. <laughs>